All right, well, today we're going to continue our series through the book of Deuteronomy. So have a Bible in front of you, whether old school Bible or a screen, and make your way to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 19 through chapter 26. So eight chapters. Buckle up. As you make your way there, I'm curious. What's something in your life you have to have the big picture in mind in order to make sense of the small details. What is that for you? For me, we're coming up to Christmas time. It's my job as a parent and Carrie's job, she's better at it than I am, to help put little toys together for our youngest kids, right? They're so annoying. They should be so simple, and they're not. If I don't have the big picture in mind of what I'm trying to build towards, The little tiny parts don't make any sense, and it's a waste of time anyway. It takes more time to put the toy together than the time it takes for it to break, right? Can I get an amen, parents? Yes. Okay. So that's an example of something you have to have the big picture in mind in order not to lose track of the details. I share this with you because of how detailed our text is today in chapters 19 through 26. And in all of it, we need to see what God is aiming at in order to get the point. So in order to help us see what God is aiming at, just real quick, I want to help remind us again briefly of the structure of Deuteronomy before we dive in, because I think it's really helpful and it shows us how the book works, which will make our time together today more profitable. So real quick, there should be a a slide on the screen behind me. Uh, In chapters one through four, by way of reminder, the history of Israel is given. And then remember back in chapter five, the 10 commandments are reiterated again, right? As Moses is preaching to the people of God as they're ready to enter the promised land. And then Moses expounds and applies the 10 commandments with really specific stipulations, right? So the 10 commandments are gonna work like case law in the lives of God's people, So uh, the first through the fourth commandments, remember those were expounded and applied in chapters 6 through 16. And then last week, we saw that the fifth commandment was applied in chapters 16 through 18. All right, so it's just real quick. That brings us up to today, chapter 19 through 25. Moses is going to expand and apply the sixth through the tenth commandments to God's people. That is the commandments to not murder, to not commit adultery, to not steal, to not lie, and to not covet. And then finally, in chapter 26, that concludes the end of Moses' second of his three sermons in Deuteronomy. And in chapter 26, Moses is going to sum the whole thing up. Okay, so that's the aim, the general direction we're going that'll help inform the small details in front of us, chapters 19 through 26. And again, I'm sharing that structure because I think sometimes, like I hope you're reading Deuteronomy to get ready to hear it preached each each Sunday, but sometimes the book can feel like trying to eat jello with a wet noodle if you don't have the structure and the why behind it, okay? So I think the structure helps us see that Deuteronomy is beautifully designed, it has a point, and it's taking us somewhere. So have that in the back of your mind today before we dive in. And here's the aim or the argument we're going to see from our text today. 
our obedience as God's people is made by God's grace and is marked for God's glory. So please follow along with me now. Flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 26. I'm going to read the concluding verses and then we'll dive in. Deuteronomy 26 verses 16 through 19. This is God's word. This day, the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. Verse 18, and the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made, and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he has promised. So before we start, let's all agree together in prayer today. Father, we praise you for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. We need to hear from you today through your word. So we pray. Open your word to us this morning and open us to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, eight chapters. We're going to look at some key themes and answer three key questions as we explore these eight chapters together. The first question we're going to address is how are God's people to demonstrate grace in a broken world? The second question is, how are God's people to demonstrate justice in a broken world? And then three, what does all of this mean for us? So first, how are God's people to demonstrate grace in a broken world? If you were to spend some time looking at it in chapters 19 through 26, you're going to see over 30 times the language of the Lord your God is giving you or has given you, the action phrases of what God has done for his people You'll see that over 30 times in our text. So the drumbeat of the text is God's grace, what he has done for them, and then how the people are to respond. But we have to ask ourselves to really rightly understand and apply Deuteronomy. What kind of world are they to respond in? We're going to see it here. And it's going to get kind of uncomfortable and awkward, and that's okay in our text, okay? Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy paints a very realistic picture that the world God's people live in is a fallen one. It's broken, okay? If we're, again, going to truly get Deuteronomy, we can't see it as like God's laws to build a perfect society. You'll be sorely disappointed if that's what you're coming into the book of Deuteronomy for. That's not the point of the book. Instead, it's God speaking through Moses about the covenant he is making with Israel as they're about to go into the promised land. But again, going into a land that's still broken. So it's about God's people in a real place and God telling them how they're to live in a real broken world. Let me prove my point to you real quick in two ways. One of my favorite verses in all of this, I'm sure young people, some of yours is too. Chapter 23, Deuteronomy is going to get really honest about the brokenness in the world. There are laws of what to do with human excrement, and it gets really detailed. And here's what it means. It means basically that you're going to like 
pack it in, pack it out, leave no trace. If you've gone on a backpacking trip, you get what Deuteronomy 23 is talking about, right? And it gets really detailed. You're supposed to carry your trowel around with you at all times so your excrement is buried, okay? That's how detailed our text is today. Or in chapter 24, there are laws about the disease of leprosy. And and like, it's amazing, we can't miss this. Over 3,000 years before human beings started to understand there's such a thing as germs, right? God was giving his people instructions about life that accounted for germs. In other words, life in a broken world, right? With sickness and diseases and germs. So Deuteronomy is not just about clean living. It's about how does God tell his people to demonstrate grace in a broken world? So chapter 19 through the middle of 22 are going to apply the sixth commandment to God's people. The sixth commandment is not to murder. Okay, so here's this commandment, don't murder, and yet you inhabit a broken world. That's going to bring up some questions, right? Because life is messy and complicated. There's different types of killing, right? What's the difference between premeditated and an accident? What's justified? What's punishable? And how are God's people supposed to account for all of that? So just look down, the Bible in front of you, chapter 19 with me. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read all of 19. And again, I hope when we're in Deuteronomy together, you're taking time to be in God's word before we gather as a church. But in 19, what you're going to see, even the the heading is going to show you, we're going to see laws that are about cities of refuge. Basically, These are places where someone could go if they accidentally killed someone, right? I'm not supposed to murder, but I live in a broken world. I accidentally killed someone. What am I supposed to do? You go to a city of refuge. So in other words, Moses is preaching. He's applying the sixth commandment in a messy and broken world. And why does all of this matter? I I want us to get this just real quick. It matters. I think you'd agree with me. Like the basic instinct of the human heart at all, at all times in all different cultures is to turn the volume up on violence, right? If someone hurts me or my family, the history of the world is, I'm not going to just respond in kind. I'm going to up the ante and I'm going to kill their whole family, right? That's what this is, is peering into, So if you kill a family member, I'll kill your whole family. And on and on it goes. Basically, the cities of refuge work just like one of the first laws in the Old Testament, right? Remember like tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye. And when you hear that, that can sound like Hunger Games kind of stuff, right? Like that's brutal. What is that doing in the Bible? But when you distance yourself and think about it from that cultural context, that was actually really gracious of God, to give that law to his people. It helped mitigate violence. So if someone knocks my tooth out, maybe I take their tooth out, but I don't kill them and their whole family, right? That's what's happening here with these cities of refuge. It's how they work. So again, it's gonna get really specific. Look down at verses four through seven in chapter 19. What's it say? This is the provision for the manslayer who by fleeing there may save his life If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood 
and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree, and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. Lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. That's really detailed, isn't it? Like, (laughs) when you read that, can't you just like, you can't help but think like Moses is, so hypothetically speaking, Moses is saying, say a guy goes with a neighbor into the woods and the ax accidentally hits his neighbor and he dies. What happens? Like Moses is saying, asking for a friend. Like you wonder if that's what Moses did, right? Like how detailed is that? That's crazy. But however, these cities of refuge weren't just for anybody, right? It wasn't an excuse that there is no consequences or punishment in this broken world either. Just let your eyes go down to verses 11 through 12. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. So what's the point? What's the aim of all of this? That God's people are to demonstrate grace in a broken world and there are still real consequences for the guilty in this broken world, right? So the theme of like grace and justice, it just weaves in and out in the whole text. And grace also means, I'm just gonna keep showing you certain themes here. Grace also means that you don't treat the guilty with injustice either. Flip over to chapter 25. Look at verses one through three. If there is a dispute between men and they come into court, and the judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more, lest if one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. All right, so there's no question here. This guy's guilty, and the appropriate authorities determine he's guilty, right? But even in the midst of that, grace and justice work together, don't they? Like, like just notice here, this isn't Old West, get a rope and drag him into for mob justice, right? There's a trial, there's a judge, and the judge doesn't just turn the guy over to the mob to do whatever they want with him, right? The judge is overseeing the whole process of consequences here. And just notice in verses two and three, the punishment fits the crime. (laughs) There's a limit to the punishment they could give, even to someone who's guilty, right? 40 lashes and no more. So why? Our text answers it. Verse three, even though the law found this man guilty, This man is your brother, it says. So even in punishment, even in righteous, just punishment, this person has dignity because he's a fellow image bearer of God. Like, do you see that the grace that is happening here? 
And I think as I've been reflecting on this text this last week, it can feel really distant to us, right? But there's some really, really important and applicable themes and principles here for us too. Because the impulse in the human heart, in all of our hearts here today too, is that once someone is guilty, then we're justified in dehumanizing them, right? That's how our hearts tend to work. But God's character is behind all these laws, and it stands over and against the tendency to dehumanize the guilty in a broken world. So just picture with me like what this could look like. It could look like a lot of things, but three things came to mind. First, even those guilty of crimes in late 2023 in and around the city of Gresham, even those in prison and rehab are people with inherent dignity. That's the principle here that is drawing out for us. Or maybe you here, maybe you're in a position of authority. Like maybe you're the exciting Michael Scott middle manager at work. Or maybe you're in law enforcement or in the military or you're a coach, right? You have authority, you have power over some people. It's your responsibility to treat those people with dignity no matter what wrong they've done. You're not excusing the wrong, but you're still treating them with dignity because they're your brother or sister, fellow image bearers of God. I was thinking about this too, like, doesn't this just push against cancel culture? <laughs> like, think about in our day and time, right? Someone is guilty or maybe even perceived as guilty and the mob rallies to cancel them and everyone gets like pleasure from it, don't they? Right? Basically to dehumanize them. The principle here, God's law here says, no, this person, no matter what they did, whether they're guilty or not, they have inherent dignity. Do not shame them. Do not dehumanize them. You can still treat someone with grace, even as justice falls on them, right? That's what Deuteronomy is confronting us with here. So one more example. Again, we're looking at themes. We're drawing those out. Turn over. This is like a Bible sword drill today. Turn over chapter 20, where we're going to see laws concerning warfare. So God knew that there would be warfare, that that's a reality in a broken world. But what God says for God's people is it matters. It matters how you do warfare, okay? What God instructs his people here is radically and categorically different than how the nations all around Israel did war in those times. Just look down, chapter 20, verses five through nine. The implication is war wasn't the most important thing. There's valid, real reasons why some men shouldn't fight. It's right there in the Bible in front of you, verses five through nine. There were higher priorities than war for those who followed God. Or move down just a little bit further to verses 10 through 20 in chapter 20. Here again, just to summarize, you're gonna see a preference for peace. And then in verses 19 and 20, look what, what God's people are supposed to do. <laughs> like how different. They're supposed to protect the trees. <laughs> like that's absolutely amazing in any time and place. But especially back then when it was like total war, slash and burn, you're gonna salt your enemy's fields so they can't ever grow crops again for generations and generations. But what does God say to his people? 
He accounts for war. It's a broken world, but he says, you're going to do it different because you're mine and you're going to care for trees. Like that doesn't mean they all drove Subarus with bumper stickers, okay? But they were supposed to care for the trees. That, that's like just amazing. There were rules of restraint for God's people in a broken world. And again, Deuteronomy can feel distant. Let's take that principle and like bring it in into us, into our time and place today. I'm just going to say this because this is what came to mind. Friends, we all know this. I said this two sermons ago. You can tell it's on my mind. We are entering another election year. We are going to hear from whoever your favorite candidate or candidates are, whatever party, whatever news source you hear, you are going to hear this is the most important election in our lifetimes. Maybe, maybe not. Like you're not a prophet or son of a prophet. Only God knows that, right? But regardless, even if it is, God's people are to do life differently. It doesn't give an excuse for God's people not to act like God's people, to have grace and justice and dignity, right? What is clear right here from the pages of Scripture is that God's people aren't to live life in this broken world like the world, right? God's people are to do life not like the world. There's warfare, but their warfare was totally different. They even cared for trees. So God's people are to be different in war, in politics, and everything in between. That's what we're seeing right here in Deuteronomy. And I think you'd have to agree with me, like that's striking, isn't it? It should function like a spiritual and ethical smelling salt in our lives. The path of least resistance is to do life just like the world and justify it accordingly. God's word says no. No, we see that right here in Deuteronomy. God's people are to demonstrate grace in a broken world because grace is what God has given his people. Okay, that's a theme, 19 through 26. This brings us to our second theme, our question. We're going to explore briefly together. How are God's people to demonstrate justice in a broken world? And when I say justice, I don't mean only the punitive aspect of justice we see in scripture, but I also mean the restorative aspect that the idea of justice carries with it in scripture, right? Specifically, you'll see this all over the text, specifically to the weak and the vulnerable. That's what we see in our passage today. So to help us see this theme, flip over to chapter 21. Let's hear God's word together, verses 10 through 14. When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God gives them into your hand, and you take them captive. And you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife, and you bring her home to your house. She shall shave her head and pare her nails, and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured, and shall remain in your house, and lament her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife." But if you are no longer, but if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. I told her, I told you our text was going to get pretty gritty, pretty specific, even kind of awkward, right? 
So what's going on here? Like when you hear that, let's just be honest, that seems appalling, doesn't it? Like to our modern sensibilities, that seems appalling. But remember how Deuteronomy works. It's not painting a picture of like an ideal world in a perfect kind of world, right? It's to help God's people live in a broken world, in the world God's people are going to inhabit as they make their way to the other side of the Jordan River. So I want to like help us in this because this is tough sledding right here in chapter 21. I heard a really interesting interview, I'm going to summarize it for you, uh, with an Old Testament scholar Her name is Sandra Richer. It was a super fascinating listen. Uh, I can share it with you if you want to talk to me after this, but um, she talks about this era in Middle Eastern history that was called the Iron Age. And Dr. Richer, she looked at the parts of the Mosaic Law, like right here in Deuteronomy 21, that deal with sexual violence towards women and listen to what she concludes. Far fewer lives were ravaged by sexual misconduct in the central hill country of Israel in the Iron Age than in Southern California this year. How can she conclude that? Because when the Bible speaks to stuff like this, like we see right here in chapter 21, it's not saying that God is endorsing or canonizing this, right? Like this is the best way to live life in the world. Instead, what is God doing? He's incarnating into the world, right? Into this culture we see back here in Deuteronomy. I don't want you to miss this. Here's what I mean. If God was going to make himself known, think about it. He'd have to make himself known through real people, right? In real places and in real faith. So here, and and, uh, who I listened to this interview, she does a great job um, explaining this, but here we see God manifesting himself in this culture that we're looking back over 3,000 years ago, right? In the Iron Age in the Middle East. God's critiquing the culture all around Israel at that time, but he's not totally dismantling it like down to the foundation, right? Because if he did that, there'd be no means of communication. So he's incarnating into this culture and he's saying, my people will live life differently. Because do you know, and we're just going to get real here. Do you know how women were treated all around Israel in this time and place? If women and children were captured in war, the capturing army and soldier could do whatever they wanted. And it was evil and it was brutal and it was gross and just appalling, right? But think about our text right here, what God is saying through Moses to his people. We see laws about how women from warfare are to be treated. Like, just think about this. Whose power is being restricted here in chapter 21? It's the male soldiers, isn't it? Whose interests are being protected here? It's the woman's. And not only that, it's the woman who's not even an Israelite. And she's to be treated with dignity and honor. Now, again, it might feel really weird to us right now, but we can't let our cultural sensibilities now frame scripture in a way that God doesn't intend us to, right? So what we see right here in Deuteronomy 
is that God is very protective of the weak and vulnerable. Again, even as we read from our culture's presuppositions back into a very different context, into a very different culture. So in the brutal and bloody world of Deuteronomy, where women wouldn't have naturally been protected, this kind of law we see here called God's people to a completely different and higher standard. Okay, I know this is hard, but we have to see it how God's word is written and how it's intended to be understood. So real quick, there's a few other places that demonstrate this theme of justice in a broken world. Turn over to chapter 24. 24, 24.6 says, you can't take a millstone as a pledge for a loan. What in the world does that mean, right? So just think about back then, a millstone was how people ground grain to make bread to feed their family and probably to sell it too to provide, right? So this law is important because a millstone is what people use to live, right? So you couldn't just take that as pledge for a loan because that would be unjust. Or just a few verses down the page, chapter 24, verse 10. It's an amazing verse. It says that let's say you give a loan to someone and you're gonna take collateral from them. You can't just go into their house and take it. You can go up to their house, but they have to go into their house, get the collateral you agreed on and bring it out to you. You can't just kick the guy's door in and get whatever you want. You have to treat him with dignity and with justice, right? I would wish some Craigslist sellers and buyers would read this, right? It's applicable. So do you see the point of all of this, the aim of all of this? God's people were to have a society where all people are valued and respected, even in a broken world. And why? It's right there on the page in front of you. Look at verse 22 of chapter 24. Why are they to show justice for the weak and the vulnerable? Because of who God is and what he's done for them, right? That's what verse, what verse 22 is saying. So they're supposed to remember their identity, who they are, and to act with compassion as God acted with compassion towards his people. So the reason why they're supposed to have compassion for the weak and the vulnerable, it's a theological kind of reason, right? So just think about Deuteronomy over 3,000 years ago and think about us today. How much more is this true for us now of who we are and what we're supposed to remember? The Israelites here knew of God's compassion because he did what for them? He delivered them from slavery in Egypt and God tells them to remember, remember, right? We know God's compassion now on this side of the cross because of God freeing us from the punishment and slavery of our sin, right? So how much more true is this for us? They knew of God's kindness then by what? God giving them land. What did God give us now? his son. He gives us himself through his son. Like this command, this call for God's people to care for the weak and the vulnerable, it's like to the infinity power for God's people now, right? And as I've been thinking about this, I just want to like land this to Gresham Bible Church. I am so thankful and praise God for his grace at work in the life of our church. And so many that so consistently serve the weak and the vulnerable, right? 
from adoption to foster care, for caring for those with special needs or disabilities, to caring for an ailing or an aging spouse or parent, right? This church is moving towards this. You model this. And that is God's grace and his kindness to us. Isn't that amazing that the God of the universe, the creator God of the universe, cares about the weak and the vulnerable in this world? But what I want to apply to you and spend a minute here just kind of like thinking about is that this tells us something. Like when the gospel moves from your head to your heart, you realize we're all on the weak and vulnerable scale. (laughs) Some more than others, but there is no one who is not weak and vulnerable. And do you know when you're especially weak and vulnerable? (laughs) When you're really particularly aware of that and you actually feel feel that truth, it's when you're caring for someone who's weak and vulnerable, right? Like, again, many of you here today, do you know what it feels like to care for the weak and vulnerable? It feels like you're weak and vulnerable. (laughs) That's how it works, right? So I just want to encourage you and give you some hope today from God's word. Like if you came in here today and you're like white knuckle gripping it, just barely hanging on because of how you're caring for the weak and the vulnerable, God's word is speaking to you today. God remembers, God knows, your caring is going to exhaust you and maybe even sometimes overwhelm you. But God will never fail you. He is sure when you're unsteady, He's strong when you feel weak. He is kind and gracious and loving and faithful when you feel like you're barely hanging on, right? God cares for the weak and the vulnerable. He calls his people to care for the weak and the vulnerable. And when you do that, you are going to become weak and vulnerable. And that's okay. And it points us to God, right? So when you're feeling weak and vulnerable, remember Your frailty doesn't exhaust the love of God, the love of God for you and his love even for who you're caring for. All right, there's so much here. Uh, So far in 19 through 26, we've seen that God wants his people to demonstrate grace and justice in a broken world. And again, I'm just skimming the surface here. And we're to do that because of who God is and who we are. And then that brings us to our third and final question. What does this mean for us? It's not about you. Like at this point in Deuteronomy, don't you just have to wrestle with what would it have actually been like to be the people of God back here, right? To maybe be in the mud as you're ready to cross the Jordan River into the promised land. And think about all the things you have to remember and do or don't do, or you're going to be ritually unclean. Worrying every day that maybe you're going to accidentally step in blood, or you're going to forget your trowel and not bury your excrement. And then you're going to be unclean. Like, wouldn't that stress you out? Just day to day, like, think about that, right? Or think about it in the big sense, in the spiritual sense. God's people back then had to offer an animal sacrifice year after year after year. And eventually, whether it's year one or year 10, you're going to be really aware that this doesn't fix it at all. I'm going to be unclean again. I'm going to be back here next year. My kids are going to be back here next year. My grandkids are going to be back here next year. 
Like that's how you would have felt, right? If you were living back here in Deuteronomy. And that had to be exhausting and crushing in some kind of way, right? So that's the law that Moses has been preaching and applying to God's people. What would it have felt like to live back then? And then think about what Jesus does. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says that he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. So he raises the bar even higher, right? The law said, do not commit adultery. What did Jesus say? If you think of a woman, look at her lustfully in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Jesus raised the law even higher. So in light of that, like what hope did they have back then? What hope does it feel like sometimes we have right now? So what does this mean for us? I'm gonna boil it all down. It means that everything, everything these laws were aiming for, we already have in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 says, our hearts are sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus. The holiness that they were striving for every single day, we have been given as a gift through Jesus Christ. Like just think about how it would have felt to live in that day and let that lift your eyes to the wonder and the glory of Jesus and what he accomplished in the gospel. And I want you to see it in our text, in the Bible in front of you, about how this happens. Look at chapter 21 here in Deuteronomy. Look down starting in verse 18. You're gonna see that there's a law about a rebellious son and a law that says a man who is given the death penalty by being hung on a tree, that man is cursed. What's that sound like, right? Jesus brings this to its ultimate fulfillment, doesn't he? as the only son who perfectly obeyed the law, but he experienced the covenant curses on the tree so that we can experience covenant blessings. Colossians 1.22 says that through the sacrificial death of Jesus, we're presented before God as what? Holy and blameless. Everything they were looking for back then, you Christian now have in and through Jesus Christ not through your clean living, but through Jesus living the perfect life we should have lived, right? And dying the death we should have died for the just punishment of our sins. The only thing we have to offer Jesus is the dirtiness of our sin and our need for him. And he offers us his perfect holiness. That's amazing, right? Through the cross, Jesus took the curse of sin and took the just penalty for sin we deserve in order to give us something, in order to give us his righteousness, which we have no claim to and which we don't deserve. Galatians chapter three, verses 13 and 14, our call to worship passage today. It picks up Deuteronomy 21, 18, and it applies it to us on this side of the cross. Galatians 3. 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And the implications of that change everything. And again, you're going to see it right from our passage in front of us today in Deuteronomy. 
quick, last one. Go over to Deuteronomy 23, real quick. At the beginning of Deuteronomy 23, for the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize it. There were two classes of people who were excluded from the assembly of God. And it's going to like feel awkward to read it and kind of uncomfortable. Okay, The people that were excluded were eunuchs and foreigners. But later in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 56, he's keen off of Deuteronomy 23, and he gives a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And Isaiah prophesies that through the Messiah, those who've been excluded will be brought in. So just just think about this language, this truth, this reality in scripture. Where is this picked up in the New Testament? Some of you are probably like, right now, Acts chapter eight, right? Who was one of the first people to become a Christian? An Ethiopian eunuch. Like that's amazing. That's not by accident. It's almost like there's one author with one story, right? Right? It's amazing here. This means that through Jesus Christ, the barriers of Deuteronomy 23 are taken down and salvation is offered to all. Like God is amazing and his word is beautiful. The gospel was not God's plan B. It was the the plan from the very beginning and Deuteronomy only helps us see and appreciate the texture and wonder and depth and glory of the gospel. Through Jesus Christ, all are invited to come in and receive the offer of free forgiveness for sins and to live in the ultimate promised land of life everlasting with joy unending with Jesus and his people for all of eternity on the new heavens and new earth, right? Like what I want to leave us with is Jesus is amazing. (laughs) And he's amazing from Deuteronomy 19 through 26, okay? He shines from every place in scripture. He really is the center of the Bible and only through Jesus do we have true life forever. I want to share a quote with you that captures this. There's this guy named Robert Green Lee. He was a scholar and a preacher, and he put it like this. Take Jesus out of the Bible, and it is like taking calcium out of lime, carbon out of diamonds, truth out of history, matter out of physics, mind out of metaphysics, numbers out of mathematics, cause and effect out of philosophy. Through this book, the name of Jesus the revealed, the redeeming, the risen, the reigning, the returning Lord runs like a line of glimmering light. The thought of Jesus, the desire of all nations, threads this great book like a crystal river winds its way through a continent. Yes and amen. So as we close, two quick things. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, I wonder what you think about all of this what you heard me say, right? Maybe what Deuteronomy 19 through 26 speaks to. And I wonder even in a deeper way, like how you're trying to navigate life in this broken world. And I would call you to that God is welcoming you in today, not through anything you can do to clean yourself up. Because no matter what you're coming to Jesus with, you can't make Jesus dirty, He only makes you clean, right? So let me encourage you today. If you're here and you don't know Jesus or in the sound of my voice, I really mean this. I would encourage you to confess and repent of your sin of ignoring God 
and trying to find your identity and satisfaction in other things and then turn to Jesus and be welcomed home. That's what our verses say. All the barriers are torn down in Jesus. And then we can't miss this in closing. What's the purpose of all of it? Chapter 26. Here Moses is going to end again his second sermon to God's people as they get ready to move into the promised land. Chapter 26 summarizes all of Deuteronomy to this point, and it makes the aim light up like a spotlight. Just look at it with me real quick. Verses 1 through 11, it talks about the grace of God to his people. Again, I'm just summarizing. Verses 12 through 15 talks about the people's obedience to God, but don't miss it. Verses 16 through 19 that I read at the beginning of our time, it talks about the why the aim of the obedience of God's people. Why? Because the glory of God is put on display through the gracious and just obedience of his people. The obedience of God's people is framed by grace and glory, right? We obey because of God's grace, not by our own earning or striving or cleaning ourselves up for the purpose of making God's name and renown known to the nations. That's what Deuteronomy 26, 16 through 19 shows us here. Remember back in Deuteronomy, like all these laws were to help other nations see like, man, the God of Israel is amazing. So it was like a come and see type idea, right? But this side of the cross, now God's people are to go and tell. Tell the nations of his grace and justice and glory through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I know that's a lot, Deuteronomy 19 through 26, but I hope you'd agree with me that we've seen together from God's word today that our obedience as God's people is made by God's grace and it's marked for God's glory. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your great grace that you are just and the justifier. We confess and repent, Lord, of being far too easily pleased with other things. I pray, Lord, that you will mark us individually and as a church, that we're made by your grace, Lord, and that we're marked for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.